The scripture for this morning's sermon is from Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the steep, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? So good to be here with you all this morning to preach the word of God, to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Um, Just as a disclaimer, uh, didn't I kind of always wanted to preach from this passage, so that's kind of how I decided on it. And um, there's no particular reason um, in the life of the church or anything like that. It just kind of, when the opportunity came up, that's how I wound up here. So this morning we get to wrestle with the familiar passage. Hopefully there'll be some insights that you guys can take away with you. Let's pray together, and we can jump in. Lord God, we come before you, and we are humbled, and... We have great hope, too, that you are with us, and that because you are with us, you represent us to God, and God, you are represented to us through the person, our mediator, Jesus Christ. And I just ask, Lord God, that you would please glorify your name among us this morning and cause us, Lord God, to uh, let the word land on us and have its intended effect, we pray. We pray all this in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen. What are you afraid of? I'm not talking about things like spiders or snakes or crocodiles or things like that. I'm talking about things that control your life and threatens your faith in Jesus. Um, For some of you, maybe an, an obvious example of that would be something like a natural disaster or an accident or a sin issue that has you living in the fear of losing something or someone that's precious to you. Perhaps it might be losing a job and all the implications that come with that. Maybe it involves the direction of our country, whether it be elected officials or the moral decay of our culture terrorism, the decline of the church and syncretism and all the implications that come with that. With that. Maybe if you're a teen or a college-age person and you're starting to be a little bit more conscious of the future, you might lose sleep over how everything is all going to work out and that could be a controlling fear. If you have children... 
that opens up a whole new dimension of fear. Amen? For many of you, it seems like managing fear would be so much easier if you didn't have precious children whom you love dearly. And you don't fear so much for yourself, but for what life is going to look like for them and their children. What kind of world will they grow up in? All the thoughts, the many thoughts of the bad possibility relating to your children might leave you feeling a little bit on the vulnerable side. Of a kind of a little bit of a funny story. We were going to a parade in Maple Grove, and um, on the way that we're walking to the parade, we're going through the sidewalks and so on and so forth, and all of a sudden we hear a driver in a Corvette revving his engine several times. And I was kind of focused on moving us down the road, and Elise turns around and says, that car is awesome! And it hit me immediately as I was baffled, and a flood of fears thundered into my mind. All I could think about is, that's the wrong response. That's obnoxious and irresponsible. You're only six. You shouldn't be attracted to risk-taking men driving muscle cars. All right? At that moment, I became convinced I need to get a shotgun and start doing P90X, all right? And put bars on the windows, and she's not going out of the house until she's 20. She might start dating when she's 30, but even then. That's my six-year-old daughter. Psalm 127 says, Children are arrows in the quiver of a warrior. And, you know, for me, I feel like I got the polishing the arrow down. I got the sharpening the arrow down. But when it comes time to being the warrior and putting it in the bow and shooting it, no. We want to keep them safe. We polish our arrows, we sharpen our arrows, but when it comes down to it, the idea of being a warrior and using my kid in battle, I don't like that. And that's the picture Scripture holds up for us. And there's more subtle fears, such as the fear of man. And although the fear of man might be a little bit more on the subtle side, It rules and controls our lives, maybe more than we even realize it does. Ed Welch, he has this book called When People Are Big and God Is Small. That's a good description of what the fear of man is. When people are really important and God, whatever. When people's opinions matter up here and God's opinion, well, somewhere down there, he says... The three main reasons why we fear man is because they expose or humiliate us. They can reject, ridicule, or despise us. Or they can attack, oppress, or threaten us. So this could mean, and here are just a couple of examples, feeling affirmed when people like your Facebook status or rejected when they don't. Or doing things in such a way that kind of shapes the way people perceive you. One example I thought of is, We went out to the Red Lobster. We had a gift card. 
Yeah, I bought this shirt at the Gap. It was on sale on the clearance rack. Right? Why? You ever stop and wonder, why, why do we always have to have that disclaimer? I'm talking about myself, maybe. So I don't want to make this a taboo subject if you feel guilty. But perhaps there's a fear of man issue there where we want to be perceived on how we spend our money and utilize our finances. It could cause or it could mean that we get angry or depressed when people do not recognize your achievements. Or perhaps second-guessing decisions based on what others might think. You ever live like that? Oh, I should have got the blue one. He doesn't like, he doesn't like blue. She doesn't like whatever. What's beneath that? Perhaps fear of man. You're controlled by what other people think of you. And this is the life-shaping, life-controlling fears that I'm talking about. Perhaps jealousy of other people or their possessions. Maybe lies or embellishments in an attempt to make yourself look better. Or perhaps you're easily embarrassed because other people's perceived opinions about you define you. And I could probably go on and on and on unearthing all kinds of potential fears that control our lives, but I want us to understand and get the feeling that no one is exempt from the storms of fear that rage in our minds and in our hearts. The chaos of the wind send crashing waves into our souls and they threaten to sink us in doubt and fear. Mark, and in general, 16 chapters, he seeks to reveal Jesus as the servant-hearted God who demonstrates authority. In a nutshell, that could be what the Gospel of Mark is about. In fact, an easy way to summarize the book of Mark is dividing it into two halves. On the first half, we see Mark pay extra close attention. And you notice he always uses the word immediately, immediately, immediately. He's moving the story along, focusing on the miracles and the deeds of Christ. So, in the first half, around the first eight chapters or so, we see him driving out demons, forgiving sinners, cleansing lepers, calling his disciples, preaching with authority, irritating the Pharisees, for sure, redefining the family, rebuking the wind and the waves, healing the sick, feeding the multitudes with almost nothing, walking on water, interpreting the Old Testament, restoring sight to the blind, the deaf hear, the paralytics walk, the mute talk and the dead live again. Those are things that Mark captures in the first eight chapters, and he pays specific attention to that. And naturally, Jesus begins to gain some fame. People start showing up at his door, namely the whole city, right? He's famous. And with such a following, he takes the spotlight from the Jewish leaders, he takes the spotlight from the Roman leaders, and what does the world watch him do as he is in this spotlight of doing all of these miraculous deeds? He goes to the cross. The injustice, the scandal, the absurdity, the sacrificial love, Mark captures that all for us. And that brings us to the boat with the disciples. Now, the Sea of Galilee was known for its violent storms, being 620 feet or so below sea level, and it was surrounded by mountains. The wind that funneled in that region into the lake or into the sea 
would produce very sudden and very violent storms. So, not a good combination. You can set out with no indication that there might be a storm coming, and all of a sudden it could be upon you very suddenly and very violently. No thank you. All right? I'll walk. But, I just want to maybe paint a little bit of a biblical picture of the sea as well, and how the Bible views the sea. Um, There are many passages that talk about the sea, revealing the glory of God, so I don't want you to get the wrong idea, but there is also a biblical notion that the sea is a place of chaos and death and sorrow. Revelation 13, John sees this picture of the beast, and where is the beast rising out of? The sea, right? And I don't think we take that literally. I think that the beast is symbolizing Satan, and the sea is symbolizing something that meant and was associated in, the, in, in that time period with chaos, with death. And later on in the book of Revelation, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Whether you take that literally or figuratively, the point of the matter is, what John is saying in Revelation 21, is that death, chaos, anything that opposes the kingdom of God is done away with. The sea is no more. And perhaps, I don't know, what do you make of the story where Jesus casts out demons and sends them into the pigs, and then where do they wind up? In the sea. I don't know. There might be a connection. All these demonic spirits going in there. So with that said, Jesus leads his disciples into the sea, which is already a place of danger, a place associated with chaos, with death, because it has swallowed up so many people. And you can imagine... Um, they're in their boat. They follow Jesus, and the boat was most likely about 26 feet long. So if you're metrically challenged, I measured it out this morning. Some of you guys were probably wondering. Imagine that first small square, second, and then third. That's the length of the boat that they were probably in. It was about 8 feet wide. So you got 13 people, grown men, in this boat, about that big, They're by no means squashed in there, but definitely not a kind of vessel you want to approach a fierce and sudden storm in. So they go on the sea, and naturally what winds up happening is the storm comes upon them. And the disciples, and all of us if we were in the boat too, fear for their lives. And Jesus, all along, was in the stern, sleeping on a cozy cushion. I don't know how he had space, I don't know how he pulled this off, but he's sleeping. Now, in this, um, it's pretty obvious. One of the first assumptions that we can make is that Jesus has such faith in God that he sleeps through the storm. And yes, I think that's a picture of heaven's peace and the rule and the reign of God coming to dwell in the midst of life's storms. But we also see a picture of Jesus' humanity, right? Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus took on flesh and he dwelled among us. 
It means that Jesus became a man and limited himself to all of the human weaknesses. It means that after a hard day of ministry, Jesus crashed in the boat because he was tired. He was a man. And he was subjected to the human limitations of what being a man is. Don't let that fact escape you. All right? It wasn't just that Jesus had such perfect faith in God that he just had this heavenly slumber. He was a man just like us, and he dwelled in humanity. He was fully man, as the Bible says. But in the same incident, right, we see his deity. He demonstrates the fact that he is God when he speaks to the wind and to the waves, and they obey him. So this story paints an awesome picture of Jesus' role as mediator. We've been talking about a mediator. Because Jesus is made like us as a man, he can effectively represent God to us. And I would argue the way Jesus is representing God to us in this situation is that God's heavenly rule and reign and peace is manifesting itself in the midst of life's storms. He's representing God's kingdom that has come to dwell on this earth. So he's fully man, and yet he's fully God. He's not created. And he can represent us in the midst of life before God. And we too can know the power of his calm. Now Pastor Charlie has been teaching us from the book of Hebrews that if the mediator is flawed, you cannot get to God, right? Well, let's consider Psalm 121, 1-4. It says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So maybe, could you make an argument that if the disciples had not waked Jesus up in this situation, that the boat could have capsized, maybe hit Jesus in the head, knocked him out, and drowned? After all, there's the mediator. He's the one who's supposed to be the helper, and he's sleeping. What do you do with that? Does this mean that Jesus is a flawed mediator? If he can't help when he's most needed? That's a good question. I'm glad you guys asked. Let me quickly say, no. Rather, I think we need to see Jesus himself as a perfect mediator because he too is dependent upon God the Father who never sleeps or slumbers. Jesus is a perfect mediator because he knows exactly what it's like to be a man and what it is like to be God. He knows how to rule over all creation and he knows what it is like to be perfectly humble and dependent upon his Father. Jesus was never exempt from danger, temptation, or death. He faced all of those with perfect faith in God his Father. And thus, Jesus isn't flawed at all. In fact, this goes to serve the perfection of him being the role of a mediator, playing the role of a mediator. 
Jesus was, he's in the boat with you. He's in the boat with you in life's storms. And he understands the limitations we face as weak humans who are given into fear. And yet, he offers us the solution that takes us out of the pit of fear that controls our lives and demonstrates what it looks like to face life's storms with the peace of God. As I was thinking about this, perhaps the fact that Jesus was sleeping in the stern was actually an invitation to approach him by faith and experience the same kind of rest that he had. It wasn't a cause for, oh no, what's going on? He doesn't even care. It was an invitation to say, look it, you can have this peace too. So I think it's worth raising the question, is the mediator flawed? And I say, no, absolutely not, he's not flawed. He represents God to us, and he understands our limitations, and now we can enter into his peace because of him. But if you look closely at the questions that the disciples ask, it reveals that they think that Jesus is a flawed mediator. Right? What do, they, what do they ask? They ask him a question. They say, teacher, there's problem number one. What would have been a more fitting address at this point? Maybe Lord of all creation? Sovereign king? Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? That's the question they ask. So they're fearing for their lives, and then they go to Jesus... And they ask him what looks to be a question, but really, it's not a question at all, is it? What is it? It's an accusation. And what are they accusing Jesus of? They're accusing Jesus that he doesn't care. You let the situation spin out of control, and look at here we are in this... You you don't even care. That's where their heart is at. And I would say, think about this. It's the disciples' idea, is it not, that they're perishing. That's not actually the reality. And this cuts right to the heart of so many of the things that we face, the fears that control our lives. Many times they are concocted illusions that our heart dreams up, right? And that's exactly what's going on here in the boat. Yeah, they probably have a right to be scared and fear for their lives, but they are basing their feelings on what they think is reality, not what's actual reality. Now, how many times do you let your mind run amok? Bowing down to all the fears your worried heart can imagine and then turn to Jesus, just like the disciples did, and say, you don't even care. You're not even there for me. And this is the heart of the problem. It's a faith breakdown. I would say we love the idea of Jesus being at our level, right? We're very comfortable with the humanity of Jesus. Because so comfortable 
that we can think for Jesus and we can impose our human understanding upon him. We're very comfortable with his humanity because then we can domesticate him, we can manipulate him, and expect him to respond precisely to our specifications. This is the way I would run the world if I were God. And this is a form of idolatry. This is making God in our image, making God relate to us on our terms. This is why we're very comfortable with the humanity of Jesus, and only the humanity. This is empty religion, and that the atheists refer to as a crutch. The atheist camp likes to claim that religion, the belief in God, is essentially a man-made system. That helps us cope with our fears because we get scared and we need somebody to run to and we need something that alleviates our mind and so we create a God that will help us out and not feel so scared. However, this revelation in the book of Mark at this story puts a body slam on that line of thinking. Why? Why will that argument not hold up in this passage? Why can we say that Jesus is not a man-made crutch in this situation? Here's why. Because in this case, the God that we're being accused of creating is actually more terrifying than the fear that he is charged to relieve us from. Right? Who would ever invent such a God? Look at the disciples' response. When Jesus stands up, he says, Quiet, be still. Mark says that there was a great calm that came over. Mega calm. What was the disciples' response to this mega calm? You would think that they would say, there's mega relief. There's mega celebration, right? There's mega gratitude going around. No, that's not what happened. What did happen? They were filled with great fear. They thought they were scared about the waves. All of a sudden, they encountered the holy God. And they were mega scared. There's no way we could say that this Christian God, Jesus, is a crutch. Because if he was a crutch, he would make us feel good about ourselves. He wouldn't lead us to fear and tremble. The disciples progressed. And their degree of fear, actually. You would think that Jesus calming the storm would have alleviated their fear. He actually turned it up to another level. They were filled with terror. They were filled with awe. They were filled with reverence and respect for the living God. It is almost like Jesus stilled the disciples' hearts along with the wind and the waves, right? And in that moment of stillness, they got a glimpse of who Jesus truly was, fully man and fully God, the holy God. And they stood there completely guilty in the terrible gaze of the almighty God, and they were filled with great fear. Luke 5, 8 records a similar story. The disciples were fishing all night, and he didn't, they didn't catch anything. You guys perhaps remember this one. Jesus tells them, what does he tell them? Cast your net on the other side, right? 
So they fished all night, couldn't catch anything. Cast your net on the other side. Why don't you try that out? Peter, well, <laughs> tried that already. Didn't work. But if you say, fine. They kind of blow him off. They treat him as merely a man. And what is the response of Peter when they, he sees the nets bursting and the boats being filled with fish? He bows down and says, Depart from me! Depart! For I am a sinful man. O teacher? No, O Lord. Peter realizes his sin in that moment and the terrible offense that it is to a holy God. And I think, perhaps laden in the word, depart from me, Peter says, depart from me. Perhaps it's because Peter realizes that he doesn't want to approach Jesus on Jesus' terms. I like keeping you just the way I like you. I like domesticating you and using you for my own purposes. And all of a sudden, this is a moment where I realize I cannot relate to you on my terms, but I have to relate to you on your terms. You're the holy God. You're completely other than me. Depart. I can't handle it. This is why we run from sin, brothers and sisters. We don't want to approach Jesus on his terms only. We like minimizing our sin, saying it's not that big of a deal, it's not that big of an offense. This is our heart of Peter that says, depart from me, God. Depart. I don't want you in my life because I want to live life on my terms. So faith in Jesus Christ, our mediator, demands that we embrace him on a human level as God who is like us and sympathizes with us, but it also demands that we embrace him and submit to him on his terms as the Lord of all creation. And I want you really to hear this part right here, because this is the glory of the good news of the gospel. Faith in Jesus Christ demands that we embrace him as a man, but also a holy God. And we embrace him by faith as the holy God who exposes our sin so that he can graciously forgive them. Isn't that awesome news? The reason why Jesus, the reason why we encounter Jesus, the reason why we have faith in Jesus is so that we will be laid bare before him. We go to him in faith knowing that he will expose us and tell us something about ourselves that perhaps we don't want to hear. And he doesn't just expose us because he wants us to feel bad about ourselves. He exposes us and lays us bare so that he can forgive us and we can run to him and find forgiveness in him. So when you think about a man-made Jesus, it says that sin is not a big deal. The revealed Jesus says it's a cataclysmic deal. A man-made Jesus says that sin, or that we are not in trouble. A revealed Jesus says that we are in eternal trouble. A man-made Jesus says that our sin is not an offense. The revealed Jesus says it is an eternal offense against the living God. 
And a man-made Jesus cannot help relieve us from the fears that we face. But a revealed Jesus can forgive our sins. This is what I'm getting at here. By faith, when we embrace this Jesus who is both man and God, and when we, by faith, approach him and embrace him for who he is and all of his holiness, there is no more terrifying thing that we could possibly face in this world. The worst offense and the most the thing that we need to be most scared about is our sin as it encounters a holy God. So outside or above that, there is nothing, nothing, nothing that could cause more fear or should cause more fear. The biggest problem that every single human being faces on the face of the planet is our sin in light of a holy God. So therefore, the most terrifying thing, the thing that should terrify us and scare us the most, is that right there. And if by faith we can go to Jesus and find forgiveness and acceptance on that level, then the biggest cause of fear for us in our lives is settled. I hope you guys understand what I'm getting at here. It basically comes down to if this matter is settled for a believer, then everything else is nothing. And when we, by faith, come to Jesus, our mediator, we can approach him. He's approachable. Isn't that amazing that he's approachable? That he is the holy God? And he exposes our sin, the thing that we should be most terrified about? We can approach him if we go by faith in a spirit of repentance. And again, he represents God to us and us to God. When Jesus comes in and lives in life storms, and he manifests the perfect peace in the kingdom of God in the midst of life's storms, and if we can approach Jesus, and if our sin matter is dealt with from God, what naturally happens is we fear Jesus above all things. And a perfect fear of Jesus drives away anything on this earth that can cause us fear something that controls our lives. So essentially, we're being controlled then by the fear of Jesus. Jesus, his holiness is manifest perfectly in his justice and in his love. He keeps a, he keeps a record of sin, and it is an offense to him, but at the same time, by going to the cross, by dying on the cross, he offers us forgiveness. So therefore, again, the greatest thing that we could possibly fear is encountering a holy God with sin. And if we deal with that, 
if we encounter Jesus and if he welcomes us and if, if, he, if we approach him by faith and we're forgiven, then that's a fear that trumps all other fears. It drives every other fear away. Proverbs 14.26 says it this way. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. You think about that as a little bit antithetical, right? You think about Proverbs 14.26. The fear of the Lord. Repeatedly in the Bible, the most common command is fear not. And it also tells us to fear God. Because that's the source of our greatest problem. And hey, if we can be forgiven, then that problem is no longer our biggest problem. And all other problems are done away with. So if we can have, if we can be right with God, then we can have confidence in all other aspects of life. Back to the mediator thing. Think about it as a, as a staircase, right? A staircase that touches the lows of our human existence and reaches into heaven's perfect peace. Jesus is the one who comes down as fully man and he sympathizes with us at that level. But he also extends up into heaven's reign, Right? So if Jesus is the one who is fully God and fully man, we can embrace Jesus by faith and also experience God's holy rule and reign at the same time. So that's my charge for us this morning. That we spend time thinking about the fear of man or the fear of god when we think about the reality that jesus is fully man he's fully god and he connects us to heaven's perfect reign we too can experience the peace that jesus had in the midst of the storm proverbs 14:26 tells us that we have strong confidence and children will have a refuge let's pray together Dear Lord, I, I just pray that you would uh, glorify your name and pray that you would help this passage and the reality of it to just sink into our minds and that we would consider it. Thank you for your word, and we just pray that you would use it to bless your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.